Okay, now that you have grabbed your seat and put it in a chair, go ahead and stand up. Stand up, stand up, stand up for Jesus. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. We praise thee, O God, for thy spirit of light, who hath shown us our Savior and scattered the night. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Okay, you can go ahead and be seated. This is obviously only a neo-Baptist crowd because you didn't have all the verses uh, memorized. And um, so, so here's what, here's what I need you to know. Uh, this is uh, obviously a conference. It's not only a conference, this is also does, conference does double duty as the major part of a Living Faith Bible Institute course on uh, the history and heritage of the Bible and manuscript evidence. And so really two-thirds of the course is happening at this conference. That means you've, you've covered two-thirds of the class just, j you know, just by being here. So what we did was we extended the sign-up date. You can sign up to take this class for credits uh, online, lfbi.org, and uh, $40 a credit hour. All the Bible colleges charge $400, and uh, so if for no other reason, it's just a bargain, uh, but that gets you access to all the other information material, all the other sessions and things like that. But part of what that means is that uh, in terms of the way that at least I'm going to be teaching, uh, maybe a little bit different. Uh, this, uh, okay, this is, this is, okay, I mean, you're going to walk out of here and you're going to say, this was, this was hell. No, this is boot camp. <laughs> no, boot camp is hell. Well, no, the difference between boot camp and hell is boot camp has a purpose. <laughs> boot camp is preparing you for something. So, so don't complain about either the volume or the velocity. I mean, I mean, you complain about the volume like it's too loud or too soft, but not the amount uh, uh, or the vo velocity because that's just the nature of what we, we have to do at some point in time. And so I have desired with desire to be able to come in and take some of the more I guess uh, we might say the more technical material, and so Pastor Bartley, you know, talking about the uh, kind of the internal evidence, and I, you know, I, I get a chance to allude to some of the external evidence, and you know what? Uh, I, just, uh, I just saw last week Pastor George Grace. You know Pastor George Grace? Pastor George Grace last week was doing a Bible conference. I got a copy of his notebook, 60 pages, 60, 60 pages. So now you know where I get it from. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. Kodak was an American company founded by George Eastman in, 19, in uh, 1888. Uh, during most of the 20th century, Kodak uh, held a dominant position in photographic film. And in 1976, it had a 90% share of the market. 
like Coke. It was a company with a capacity to project its presence every place on the planet. And the company's ubiquity was such that that tagline, Kodak Moment, became a meme used to describe a personal event that demanded to be recorded for posterity. So there is even today still a Kodak Moments community on Facebook. Uh, the Bible did not have a Kodak moment, but it does have a Codex moment. Let me, let me hit you with this definition. A Codex is a document when an ancient manuscript finally made it all the way to book format. So before we can get to the translation of the Bible, I need to give you a, a Codex moment to define exactly how the Bible was written, transmitted, and preserved. There are three important things that we're going we're gonna to talk about in this particular session, the process of inspiration, the materials of transmission, and the method of preservation, because in a codex moment, inspiration was a supernatural process. Transmission was with standard materials, and preservation went through providential methods. And, and it's key that you get all three of those concepts ordered and aligned. Now I know, again, do not complain. We don't, don't complain about the velocity or the volume because here's the dealio. Uh, since this does double duty as an LFBI course, you know, any other, any other legit place that you go to get a degree or get a grade for a class, you've got to do homework. You've got to go home and do your homework. And so for each hour of class time, they're going to have, I don't know, something like an hour and a half of homework you're supposed to do. Okay, so you're not going to digest all everything at this conference that you're getting at this conference because you need to do your homework. Okay, wait, hold it. Um, um, I don't know where you ate. I don't know where you ate last night. But whatever restaurant it was, you didn't digest it there. And you didn't stay in that restaurant till it got digested. So you ate there, and then you went and digested it someplace else, and and, and, and I didn't even know you could say the phrase flesh and fill in this church. I was so, so, I was, man, I dropped my teeth on the floor. I had to pick them back up because I didn't even know you could say that. But anyhow, so let's start with the driest part first, then we'll get to the juicy points. Uh, first, the materials of transmission, and then the process of inspiration. We'll wrap up with the method of preservation. So number one, Roman numeral one, materials of transmission. Inspired words were sometimes caught by a scribe and put down on something in the act of inscripturation. Now, to understand this, we go back to the book of beginnings. Watch Genesis chapter 10. Did I say turn to Genesis 10? De Genesis 10 verse 8, and Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Whereof it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was first Babel, but second, second, Erech. So Nimrod built four cities. The second was Erech. Erech was the city of Uruk in ancient Sumer, which was, as Genesis 10 verse 10 says, the land of Shinar. Uh, 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 Erech is, is Uruk. It's near the Euphrates River, today in southeast Iraq. Even the name Iraq 
comes from the name of the area around Uruk. And that is where archaeologists discovered cylindrical seals in the Red Temple. And they were inscribed with information from about 3400 B.C. Now that might be as early as the time of Enoch. So... What I'm saying is, at least by the time Adam was 600 years old, he, heard, he learned how to write. Now, I know you learned to write when you were six, but when, by, at least by the time Adam's 600, he learned how to write. And the complexity of civilization the co- and commerce uh, drove them to invent writing. So now turn to Job chapter 19. By Abraham's time... And let me hit you with this definition, because by Abraham's time, they used cuneiform, which was wedge-shaped writing on clay. Uh, it was well-known. It was widespread. They taught it in all the sedimentary schools. Ugh, where's your homework? Well, my mom forgot to bake it. <laughs> I dropped it, and it broke. Or, you know, my pet dinosaur swallowed it, whatever. Cuneiform was wedge-shaped writing, really just chicken scratchings. So by 2700 B.C., Egyptians developed hieroglyphic writing. So we move from wedges to pictographs and finally to alphabetic writing developed about 1850 B.C., hundreds of years before Moses was born. Okay, wait. That means that inspired words could now be inscripturated. The word of the Lord could now be recorded. So selected portions of Revelation that God intended to preserve were transmitted through time down to today, but not until starting about three generations before Moses. Uh, What were the materials used for transmission? Well, we're going to explain some of these in detail because they deal with terms that are used in textual criticism of the Bible. Textual criticism is a process used not just on the Bible, but on any uh, ancient literary text. So let me hit you with this definition. Textual criticism is the process of trying to ascertain the original wording of an ancient text when all you got is its surviving copies. Now, that's a simplified definition. Because you know us, we are postmodern. And as postmoderns and millennials, uh, scholars today argue over whether or not there really was an original or only one original. Uh, this is really the backstory behind what is called manuscript evidence. So let's walk the Bible all the way from clay tablet to, to codex, uh, starting with the Rolling Stone. That's letter A. Uh, We see this material of transmission used in the Bible. Job chapter 19, did I say turn to Job 19? Verse 24, that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock on a stone forever. Maybe, maybe, Maybe more familiar besides stone. Uh, Exodus 34, 1, and the Lord said unto Moses, hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables, the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. Uh, Deuteronomy 27, verses 2 and 3, sa- same thing. Uh, be turning to Isaiah chapter 30. Stones are, are not the best tools for transmission. 
of information. They're kind of, they maybe are okay as the uh, uh, kind of the road, ancient roadside of the ancient world, you know, the road signs and, uh, uh, and, and display ads and things like that. Uh, but they're not the best tools for transmission, not just because they roll, but you can't really carry them around in your pocket. And so computers, just like computers, went from room-sized machines down to something that you now hold in your hand and you call a phone. Uh, in, the, in the same way, uh, things used for the transmission of information got smaller and smaller and smaller as civilization advanced. So after the Rolling Stones were the wooden tablets, that's letter B. Isaiah 30, verse 8. Now go, write it before them in a table, wooden tablet, and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 2, and the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain upon tables, wooden tablet, that he may run that readeth it. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 2, these tables were wooden tablets, kind of like the big chief tablet that you used in kindergarten. You know, with a big pencil, it's so big, you, you, you sat one end of it on your shoulder and you try, tried to write with it and stay within the lines. And so it was still not very compact, but it was better than dragging a, dragging a rock around with you when you went on visitation. Uh, soul winning was really tough in those early days because the tracks were just so heavy. So, so clay, stone, and wood tablets applied to the earliest days of our Old Testament. But the third material of transmission appears on the scene about six centuries before Christ, and it fueled a communication revolution. The textual history of the New Testament is divided roughly into three periods marked off by these next three materials, papyrus, vellum, and paper. So let's keep it chronological. Let's start letter C with papyrus. Exodus chapter 2, verse 9. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book. A, a scroll of papyrus was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, both sides, and there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, go to the next chapter, verse 1, moreover he said unto me, son of man, eat thou, eat that thou findest, eat this roll. He's not talking about Lambert's throat rolls, he's not talking about cinnamon roll. He's talking about a scroll. So we go from rock to roll, and that's how I like my rock and roll. <laughs> Jesus is the rock, my name is on the roll, and that, that's how I like my rock and roll. So, uh, so next, 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 thin strips of, of the pith of the papyrus reed uh, found in the swamps in the Nile Delta. They were cut and laid side by side, and, and then another series of strips was laid on top of that, uh, perpendicular to the, to the first strips, and, and the natural gum provided uh, adhesive bonding, so they were allowed to dry, and then they were rubbed smooth, and sheets were between 9 and 12 inches in size, and 12 and 15 inches in size, so really about the same size as our letter and legal size paper, and Several of them could be pasted together to form a scroll of desired length, uh, usually about 20 sheets. So the papyrus, for the most part, 
was only written on one side and bound together then in rolls. So whenever they wrote, and we put example of this on your handout, just so you know, as we get to the New Testament, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 would read something like, I think what we have on your handout and probably uh, have up here on the, on the next slide. And the custom was to write like that, capital letters, no separation. You know, I, because of texting and things like that, I tend to not capitalize anything, even I'm writing on a computer or something. If I send you an email, you know, it's all lowercase and stuff like that. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, well, why don't you capitalize the name of God? That, that's so irreverent that you don't capitalize the name of God. Well, you know, uh, uh, initially they didn't, they capitalized everything. And uh, there was no space in between. And it was the ancient form of, of texting. And they wrote in very narrow columns. And there were no accent marks or punctuation. And, and, and so they had their own. And since it was like ancient text messaging, they had their own system of abbreviations. So you can see just from this example, and this is our first point for study, early scribes were not concerned with making a readable text, but an accurate one. And that idea would have been a holdover from the attitude of the synagogue Jews toward their Torah. Because if you write like that, a certain number of lines that is a certain number of letters wide, well, you can apply mathematics to what you wrote to make sure you didn't mess anything up. So a roll was called a Biblos. Several rolls were called a tome. Pretty soon, everyone was rolling their own and hitting the Biblos. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, part of the problem today is in some states, anybody can smoke dope. That is part of the problem. And uh, but so today we hit to blunt. No, back then they hit to biblos, and that was used until the third century A.D. It was kind of like the yellow pad of writing tablets. Now turn to Zechariah chapter five. Problem is, uh, you know, papyrus is not very durable for something you want to transmit across continents and down corridors of time. And most papyrus that we have today is just fragments. So about a century later, they developed another material for transmission of written communication. It was even more sturdy, more impervious to weather, because letter D, it was leather. Uh, Zechariah chapter 5, verse 1, Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a flying leather, leather roll. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I see a flying roll, leather one, parchment, vellum. The length thereof is 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof, 10 cubits. I mean, that is, that is billboard size. Psalm 40, verse 7, then, then said I, Lo, I, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. So at first, simple tanned animal skins were used, starting about 200 B.C. They soaked them in lime water. They removed all the hair. And that type of letter was called parchment uh, after the city of Pergamum in Asia Minor, which is where the brand was trademarked. Vellum was a particular type of parchment that they made from calf skin. Uh, so I don't know, difference between steak and veal. 
And, and this became the main material for books from the 300s on. It was the dominant writing material during the Middle Ages when most of the Bible manuscripts we have today, that still exist today, were produced. If you erase the text, you can even use that leather several times. It was then called a palimpsest, meaning re-scraped. They'd scrape the old ink off, they'd write over the top. Now check this, because this will directly play into manuscript evidence. About A.D. 330, Emperor Constantine commissioned 50 imperial Bibles of vellum. And they're very beautiful, golden ink on purple skins. I don't know where they ever found purple cows. I just wish I could taste some of their purple milk. But two of those manuscripts, they survive today as the oldest complete New Testament manuscripts in existence. But their text is not the same one we received from the priesthood of believers at the time of printing presses. It comes from a line of Bibles, or family, if you will, called Alexandrian. Oldest is not best. Now, I'm not trying to throw shade on anybody sitting in here, so if you're an older person, we w- I welcome you. I am glad you are here today. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking in those terms. I, I'm not talking about that. But I, I think <clears throat> those two oldest manuscripts survive... Uh, because nobody used them. And nobody used them because they were bad copies. One was found in the Vatican Library. Just happens to be called Vaticanus. I'm not making this up. I am not making this up. And because you can't always say that word in certain churches, they also call it manuscript B. (laughs) Uh, The other one was dug out of a trash can in a convent on Mount Sinai. It's called Sinaiticus, uh, or Aleph. So Aleph and B. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And whenever those two manuscripts agreed... If those two manuscripts agreed as to a variant reading in the text, the critics of the 1850s all said, the King James Bible text is wrong, it is corrupt, it must be corrected. With these beautiful purple leather from purple cow and and golden ink copies. Um, I I have a copy of those manuscripts on microfilm, I know, back in the day. Uh, uh, But, uh, you know, I'd venture to guess the scribe who copied them did not even know Greek because of all the nonsense readings that they contain. But I should not jump ahead of the plot, which thickens letter E with paper. Turn to Jeremiah 17. Paper was invented by the Chinese in the first century AD, so it is not mentioned in the Bible. It did not come into popular use for Bible transmission until the 800s. So these are the materials of transmission as far as what the text was written on. What about what you wrote with? 
Well, there are three kinds of pens. Two of them are discussed in the Bible. First, this is letter F, there is a stylus. Jeremiah 17, verse 1, the sin of Judah is written with a stylus of iron, a pen of iron. Oh, not just that, it has a point of a diamond. And it, their sin is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, Moreover the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's stylus, a man's pen concerning Mahashbahashbahashbashas, or whatever that guy's name was. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. So this was a pen that was made from uh, bones or from iron with a sharp end for writing and a blunt end for erasing in the case that you were writing temporarily on wax tablets. There's a second type of pen in the Bible, letter G. The reed pen is in uh, chapter 8, verse 8. How do ye say, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The reed pen of the scribes? is in vain. You can't just say the Lord's word is with you if you're not doing it. I mean, you're, God says you're making me feel like. I gave you my word in vain. Psalm 45, verse 1. David says, my heart is indicting a good manner. I speak of the things which I've made touching the king. My tongue is the reed pen, uh, the pen of a ready writer. A scribe's pen was made from a reed stalk with the end crushed and frayed like a brush, and a professional scribe used it with ink on leather or papyrus. What was the difference between a stylus and a pen? You're asking good questions this morning. A stylus was used without ink on a wet, on a um, uh, surface like wet uh, clay or, or wax, and a reed was used with ink. Now turn to Jeremiah 36, because lastly, this is the letter H, is the quill pen. And the quill pen was made from a feather with a split point to use, be used primarily on parchment. Uh, that one's not mentioned in the Bible, but regarding the materials of transmission, the ink used with the reed pen or the quill pen is also referred to in your Bible. So letter I, ink. Uh, Jeremiah 36, verse 18, Then Baruch answered them. He pronounced all the words unto me with his mouth, and I, I wrote them with ink in the book. Non-metallic ink was made from lamp black, which is soot, basically, from their olive oil lamps, uh, mixed in a solution of gum or oil uh, for use on parchment. Metallic ink was a compound of gall nuts and vitriol used uh, on papyrus. Uh, be turning to Ezra, uh, Ezra chapter 6, metallic ink was prohibited for Talmudic writing uh, because it was not permanent and it damaged the writing materials, so Jews did not use metallic ink for transmitting scriptures. But once you had your pen, once you had your ink, once you had your writing material, you sat down to write. What you produced ended up being one of two things, a scroll or a codex. First, this letter J, we see the scrolls. Hebrews 10, verse 7, Then said I, lo, I come in the, in the scrolls. It's written about me in the volume of the book. To do thy will, O God. 
Uh, Ezra 6, verses 1 and 2, Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in the house of the scrolls, the house of the rolls, where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And there was found in Akmetha in the, in the palace, that is in the province of the Medes, a roll. And therein was a record thus written. So if you were on a roll, the material might either be papyrus or parchment, so either, either corn stalks or leather. Uh, it was uh, longer than your table, so you had to wind it together with a stick, thereby producing a volume from the Latin word volvere, meaning to turn. It was used horizontally from right to left for Hebrew or from left to right for Greek. The 66 chapters of Isaiah require a scroll 23 feet long. Say, Alan, how do you know? Because I have a copy of it. Uh, but I didn't bring it with me. But, you know, from the caves in Qumran, there's an Isaiah scroll. And because the scroll was not handy for quick reference, Christianity was the force that caused the switch from the scroll format to the codex, or the book format, so that's letter K. In the first century, vellum was cut into leaves. Then it was formed, in, it was bound on one side and formed into a book called a codex. And Christians used papyrus or parchment of folded sheets, usually four, to make up their book. The codex format came to dominate biblical manuscripts in the 100s and the 200s because many or all the books of the Bible could be reproduced in a single volume. Some vellum manuscripts maintain the same style of writing used in the papyrus manuscripts. You say, Alan, what was that style again? I mean, you already told us, but what was that style? Let me hit you with this definition. It's called unctuals. And those are manuscripts written in all capital letters without accent marks, without punctuation, without separating words or sentences. Later on, around the 800s, the use of small letters with spacing between words was used. These manuscripts are referred to as minuscules, actuals, minuscules, or also called cursives. So I'll hit you with that definition. Min minuscules are cursives. Manuscripts written in all lowercase letters. Manuscripts written on paper span from the 1300s up until the present. Until that time, it was rare to have a complete Bible in one book. Most of the papyrus and vellum manuscripts that are in, in existence today are fragments. Fragments of passages, maybe, maybe just one book in the New Testament. It was not until the 1200s that whole books containing all or most of the New Testament became common. So what exactly are the manuscript witnesses in existence today? Or you're asking good questions. Because I know you want to know. You know, when people talk about the Greek, what are they talking about? Zorba? Well, there are four classes of manuscript witnesses that textual critics use to try to do their work of reconstructing what they would be the say was the closest to the original autographs of the of the of the original text and let me uh, uh, um, pastor bartley used that word let me hit you with the definition of it the autographa means the original manuscript written in the author's own hand 
uh, since many of the original authors did not use their own hands, and since none of these documents exist today, the following four sources form the hard evidence scholars use in the scientific part of textual criticism. So we saw the materials for transmission, but back it up a slot. Back it up, Alan, back it up a slot and show me. What are the material sources for a Greek New Testament text? Number one, well, obviously, Greek manuscripts. And these manuscripts exist in four types as either pieces of papyri, unctual or minuscule vellum, and sometimes a codex. Uh, last time I checked, there were over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts in existence for the New Testament. Over 130 papyri fragments, about 322 unctuals, 2,936 minuscules or cursives, and the rest are lectionaries. I'll talk about those in a second. Now, by comparison, go ogle it. Go ogle a chart that compares that to other ancient authors. Nobody comes close in terms of having that many manuscripts survive as to what they actually wrote or said. So a second source, this is number two, it comes from ancient versions. Because these versions were translated from something ancient and close, closer to the autographa. So they are also used as a source for establishing a Greek text, even though they are not Greek. But, let me hit you with this definition. Versions are Bible translations into different languages. Like Greek manuscripts, there are a variety of ancient versions, and not all of them agree. Uh, so there are about 10,000 translations into Latin, and 9,300 in all various other languages combined. So there are the Latin versions, both the Old Latin and Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Uh, Syrian versions, including the Old Syriac and the Peshitta. Coptic, which is Egyptian. Gothic, which was early German. Armenian, Ethiopic, and Old Church Slavonic. And those things are important because they show us what the Greek-speaking world was reading while they were waiting in the checkout line. <laughs> the oldest version is the old Syriac, dating to the 100s. I believe it originated in Antioch of Syria in Acts 11:19. Chronologically, this is followed by a translation into the ancient Egyptian language of Coptic. Then come the Old Latin versions. A third source of uh, Greek New Testament are quotations, this is number three, from imperial church fathers. These quotations are called patristic citations. There are 87,000 of them, just in case you wanted to know. You say, Alan, well, you know, how, how, many, how many of these are there? 38 volumes. Uh, divided according to the council at Nicaea in the 300s. And so you've got anti-Nicene, pre-Nicaea, and you've got Nicene church fathers, and you've got post-Nicene fathers, and, 
and, uh, but you better recognize Constantine became emperor in AD 313. He adopted the name Christian. He adapted polytheistic Roman paganism to his new imperial church. Now, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In paganism, like in any other Christi- uh, religion besides Bible Christianity, the gods have to be appeased. So in imperial Christianity, God still has to be appeased, either by your merit or by purchased merit from a saint who died and had extra. I am not making this up. So the church of Constantine was an imperial institution built on the bureaucracy of the Tetrarchs. This was a dramatic change from the New Testament church, which existed in the book of Acts. This, this is why the church goes into a tunnel at the end of the book of Acts. You don't see it for 200 years. They were killing their Christians. They were trying to wipe out their Bible. They're, they're, there's almost zero documentation. Whenever something comes out that says it's Christian, it looks nothing like when it went in. So when theological writers of the first few centuries quote scripture, their quotations are examined. Yet, these were mostly the men, and this is letter A, who survived the persecutions because of their willingness to conform to Roman ideas. Secondly, they rose from the ranks of Roman vicars who were leaders of a Roman diocese, who had been converted in name to imperial priests. Bishops were given, at that point in time, special legal status. Anestiores. They took over the duties that had formerly been assigned to the decurions. Those were the city senators. So, let me hit you with this definition. Church fathers were leaders of the imperial church who quoted scripture in their writings. There are still variant readings in quotations showing how from the very start there were differences in New Testament texts. So there's something the Bible believer recognizes because Paul warns us it's exactly what the Bible says was happening and would happen. 2 Corinthians 2, look at verse 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. We speak in Christ. We give you the mind of Christ. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4. Go to chapter 4, look at verse 2. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Now, how do you know? Uh, talk is cheap. How do you know somebody's really renounced the hidden things of dishonesty? Well... They're no longer walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. So there have always been people corrupting the incorruptible word of God. Like Satan, they question and they quote scripture dishonestly for their own gain. Now, Eve Eve helped him out some in Garden of Eden. Uh, But, you know, he he was not past taking things out of context and tempting Christ. So this is not to say that all early church theologians or manuscripts are corrupt, but it is to say we cannot trust any one of those sources as our final authority. 
Instead, we've got to depend on the providence of God to preserve his word without error through the priesthood of believers. And then demonstrate where that preserved word is located. So the fourth source for the Greek New Testament, and this is number four, is lectionaries. These were citations of passages of Scripture. To date, 2,453 have been cataloged by the scholars. And they show that certain Scriptures were in use at certain churches at certain times, and they can sometimes, scholars would say, they can sometimes substantiate a question text. So let me hit you with the definition. Lectionaries are books written by the early church that contained lessons and hymns. You know, that's why along with your Bible, you ought to have a good hymn book. You ought to have a good hymn book. It, it would, you know, you could, I'm not telling you to go off your medication, but you could, you could throw away some of that if you had a good hymn book. I'm just saying. So just, just as an aside, apocryphal writings are books contemporary with the New Testament, but not ex- inspired, or else counterfeiting the New Testament, but not ex- inspired. They also quote scripture. So now let's get to the good stuff. This is letter two, the process of inspiration. Now, I know I'm meddling because you just bought that new NIV bug collection Bible in Italian duotone butterfly. I am not making this up. I don't know if it's still in print today, but I am not making this up. It's got the interactive text and wireless hookup to the third heaven. I did make that up. (laughs) I mean, it's the first Bible to ever read itself. You don't have to read it anymore. I mean, it led all the ESV Bibles to the Lord before you bought it. (laughs) You spend good money for that new version because you want a Bible. That's just like the most popular chair in America, the Lazy Boy recliner with built-in remote control. But since this is both an LFBI course and a conference session, uh, do we've, we've passed the materials of transmission. What about the process of inspiration? What does it mean for us to say the Bible is inspired? What is inspired? Is the King James translation inspired? If we say the original manuscripts were inspired, and then we say King James Bible is inspired, does that mean we believe in double inspiration? Does it mean we're just like the cult groups who say that their founder heard a further word from God? Can the originals and the translation both be inspired simultaneously? If we say the King James translators were inspired, well, then what keeps the Jehovah's Witness from saying that his translation is also inspired? So let's start with our thesis for this study, which is this. Inspiration is a mechanism God used to get his mind to humanity without error. Now, that is not the typical Bible college definition. In Bible college, I took a course called Bibliology. And bibliology is a sophisticated term for the doctrine of the Bible itself. What does the Bible say about the Bible? And as soon as we walked into the room, in the very first class, they gave us the Bible college definition. I mean, in effect, I guess it's contemporary uh, illustration of, you know, a building that has on the side of it no weapons allowed. You had to check your sword at the door. And my professor, Dallas Seminary graduate, Paul Wagner said this, inspiration only took place at the point where the pen touched the paper. 
the words in our Bible are not inspired. See, see, if you give them $400 a credit hour, they'll be honest with you. Words in our Bible are not inspired. Only the words the original languages from the original authors as the pen first touched the parchment were inspired. Neither the copies nor the translations are inspired. So the very first thing drilled in our heads and in our hearts was that inspiration took place at the point where the pen touched the paper. What they were trying to say was inspiration only covered the time when the original author's pen was in actual contact with the parchment. On page 22 of his Biblical Theology of the New Testament, Charles Ryrie states, Inspiration may be defined as God superintending human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. It was not until I got out of Bible college I began to question that definition. I had failed to think critically about textual criticism because the original autograph meant the first manuscript written in the author's own handwriting and inspiration only took place at the point where the pen or the stylus uh, took uh, touched that papyrus now who said that well they taught me bb warfield said that maybe bb king said that <laughs> that would have been better and I know I'm giving away their game, but this is so you don't have to pay $400 a credit hour. Uh, so the typical Bible college course on inspiration goes something like this. I think I put it on your handout, maybe. Number one, here are the contemporary views of inspiration. Liberal, neo-orthodox, evangelical. They probably go further than that today. Number two, here are the traditional views of inspiration. The Greek concept, the Jewish concept, the concept of the church fathers, and the Reformation. Number three, then we go into the fact of inspiration by looking at the etymology. That means the history of the usage of the Greek word theopneustos, translated inspiration in 2 Timothy 3.16, to get the idea of the original words being inerrant. Number four, we go into the process of inspiration. Number five, we go into the extent of inspiration by examining the word graphe, translated scripture, in 2 Timothy 3.16, and throw in other verses in order to get to the idea of verbal inspiration. It extends to the very words. And the idea of plenary inspiration, it covers every part. And then finally, number six, we look at problems with the doctrine of inspiration, like natural inspiration, dynamic inspiration, concept inspiration, and partial inspiration. And we lament over all the evangelicals who are surrendering the idea of an iner inerrant Bible. So they come out with the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and they want everybody to sign on to it. Oh, okay, I may have used a new word. Let me hit you with a definition. Inerrancy is the belief the Bible's not only inspired, but free from any mistake or falsehood, and that what is revealed on any subject cannot ultimately be proven false. But only in the original manuscript, penned by the original author. Now turn to Romans chapter 16. Somewhere around my third year of Bible college, they actually kicked some students out of graduate school. They kicked some students out of the graduate school part because those master level students no longer believed in inerrancy. They accepted inspiration, 
But by the time they got to that point in their studies, they did not believe in inerrancy. And the reason they believed that the Bible could have errors in it is because they were taught that inspiration took place at the point where the pen touched the paper. So watch, watch, watch. Romans 16, watch. Whose pen touched the paper? In the case of the book of Romans. Verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle? Not authored it, but I'm the one who wrote it. I salute you in the Lord. Oh, well, wait, that means Paul's, Paul's pen never touched papyrus. He, he dictated the whole thing to Tertius' secretary, like, like Jeremiah had done to Baruch that, that we saw last night. Only, only the difference was Tertius had, had gotten, Tertius got part of his hand cut off when he was sword fighting, so now he had to write in shorthand. So Paul used him to take dictation. Okay, LOL, JK. But, but what? What if Tertius had wax in his ears that day and Paul said, akuo, the Greek word for hearing. But Tertius heard, oh, screwo. Now the Bible is no longer inerrant. So the original autograph was not inerrant because Paul's pen never touched the paper. In undergraduate studies, students were taught the concept that inspiration is where God took a blank sheet of paper, sat some apostle down, and said, write. And what came out on that page was perfect, but what was passed down after that was imperfect, and certainly what was translated into another language could never be perfect. So what about that? If only the originals were inspired and not a single one of the original copies exists today, how can we say that what we have today is inspired? See, here's my second point for study. If you are off on the doctrine of inspiration, inerrancy doesn't matter. Go ahead and give it up. Neither does biblical authority matter. Neither does infallibility I mean, if their definition of inspiration is correct, then it means in some instances you don't even have an inspired and inerrant Bible to start with. And if you do not have an inerrant Bible, you might as well buy theirs. Hello, somebody. Turn to Job chapter 32. What is the biblical definition? Where do we see it in the Bible? The first time we see the word inspiration used is not 2 Timothy 3.16. It's all the way back in the first written book of the Bible. That wasn't Genesis. Moses put Genesis together. No, that was the book of Job. Job is the very first scripture ever because the book of Job was the first time God's inspiration was caught on paper and preserved as writing. While there are many mouths in the Bible, there's only one speaker, the Holy Spirit, the controlling, governing mind of God. So we can see at the place of its first mention how any matter is viewed by God. In hermeneutics, or Bible interpretation, this is called the law of first mention. That's one of the major rules of Bible study. 
And the Hebrew word for inspiration here in Job 32 is the Hebrew synonym, the exact linguistic equivalent of the Greek word Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3.16. Watch, verse 8, verse 8, Job 32, verse 8. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Well, if that don't beat all, I mean, there it is. That is the definition. And the, o- the only Old Testament use of the word in the Bible defines it. So let me hit you with the definition. Again, inspiration is the act of God in bringing understanding of his mind to man's spirit. So that is the theology. But if you're here and you're not asleep, I know just what you're saying. Look, uh, Alan, what is the process that supports that definition? Where do we see an account of inspiration taking place in the Bible itself? I mean, God knew that we Greek-thinking Gentiles were going to have a problem with something written through men being able to bear the stamp of God's mind in perfection. God knew we would want to assume that since frail, sinful man put his hand to it, there must be some error in it. So God took the time within the pages of the Bible to give you a picture of the process. How exactly did the revelation of God's word to man take place? How did the Spirit of God superintend over the mouths of the prophets and the pens of the scribes to produce for us once and for all the perfect revelation of God's mind for man today? And the answer is, go back and listen to last night's sermon. Brother Mark Trotter did me such a favor. I didn't know how I was going to squeeze all this in today. And now, now I'm free. I'm F-A-A-B. I'm free as a bird because I don't have to go back over all of that. Jeremiah 36, that's the picture. And, and, uh, and you don't need any more about that from me. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, okay, Jeremiah 36, that was a process. I mean, was John R. Rice Correct. Maybe it was, in one sense, verbal dictation. The Lord made a command to his prophet, that is, revelation. Then the prophet, in a supernatural manner of reception, speaks out of his mouth what the Lord put in it, that is, inspiration. It is an exhalation of God's revelation. And since it is in the mouth of two or three witnesses that truth is established... Well, that's why you usually also had a scribe present. And Peter confirms this definition for us here in 2 Peter 1, Job, Paul, Peter. 2 Peter 1, 21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They did not speak from their own initiative. Their words carried biblical authority by conveying God's will. I mean, some of this is simple. Jesus told his disciples to pray for that. That God's will in heaven be done on earth. How do you get to that point? Here, here it is, word of God. Now, here in verse 21, if you look at the word moved, it's a nautical term. And it was used of a ship driven in a storm. That did not mean the prophet lost his personality. It did not mean that he lost his own vocabulary. But he was the ship 
He was supernaturally blown into by the Spirit of God, which is why it is called inspiration. Just to prove the permanence and validity of God's word once it comes out, even when it is messed with by man. Then go back and listen to the rest of Pastor Mark's sermon last night. Jeremiah 36, verses 20 to 23. You say, Alan, okay, your God is big enough to give his word. He is, he is great enough to inspire his original message, but what about all the scribes? What about the intervening thousands of years? What about the copies and copies and copies since then? I mean, after you get through transmission, do you have preservation? I mean, since we know there are variations in the manuscripts, and we know the Word of God was actively being corrupted by heretics, and therefore, of that family in line, those manuscripts are shorter because words, phrases, verses were cut out. Well, what do we do with that then? And you know the Bible defines that situation also? Just go back and listen to the rest of Pastor Mark's sermon on verses 27 and, and 28 of Jeremiah 36. You know, how it, uh, you know, that ain't no thing but a chicken wing for God. He's just like, okay, uh, okay, okay. Okay, your problem is you're binary and not process-oriented. So, so, okay, God ain't like that. And I know you, you look at it and say, but Alan, I take my computer and I take my tool and I do this thing and I get that result. Yeah, that's because you're human. That's the best you can do it because that's your human, because you're human. So God inspires to Jeremiah, and what does it say? All the words. All the words. Jehudi takes his penknife. Now, I don't know, you know, I, I, in thinking about that, surely the fire that was in the palace was large enough they could have just thrown the whole scroll in. No, Jehudi wants to torture this thing. Uh, Jehudi wants to demean it. He cuts that thing up, they throw it in the fire. Well, hold it, that, okay. God says, Jeremiah, write down those words here. Let me give you some new ones. But I thought that was all the words. Well, it, you know what it was, but the thing you don't understand is God's providence has eyes. You thought God's providence operated like blind fate, and it doesn't. God's providence has eyes. God's not binary, he's process. So if you destroy his word there, he's going to reinforce it here. And he's going to do it you know, just the same and give you something just as good. Say, Alan, but what about translations? How can I be sure that the words in my language, they can't possibly correspond exactly to the words of the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic? I mean, how are they actually definitely still the words of God for me? What do you do, for example, with the words in italics? Let me hit you with this definition. The italicized words in the King James Bible represented words not in the original uh, meaning the original Greek or Hebrew, but words the translator later's added in order to convey the sense of what was being said into English. And there they were simply following the policy that had been established by the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible before them. So those words couldn't be inspired, could they? 
Well, not until you listen to the rest of Pastor Mark's sermon from last night and find that God added many like words. No problem for my God. He is big enough. He's big enough. Is your God big enough to make a rock so big he can't move it? You know what? My God is so big enough he can make a rock so big he can't move it and still be God. He did that. It's called your free will. And that's just what he does as God. Those are the things I can't understand. How did God create a crack in the Trinity big enough to, to hide me in while his wrath overpassed? That's crazy. How does the Father turn, turn his back on the Son when Father and Son are God? See, that's why, in terms of incarnation, Jesus had to be God. Had to be. Otherwise, none of that could happen, and it had to happen like that. So my God's big enough. Holy Spirit, as author, retains the copyright on his work. That means he f- he's free to revise his work as he chooses. So, so chart this. Revelation leads to inspiration. Prophesying, which leads to inscripturation. Some of those, sometimes those words were caught out of the air and put on, a, put, on a, put, on, put on the plate. Scripture, and then transmission, as it's copied and sent out to other manuscripts, and then preservation down to translation. That is a chain link. It starts with God's revelation to the prophet, from revelation to inspiration as he speaks, from inspiration to inscripturation as a scribe or secretary, as the two or three witnesses write those words down, or as Moses compiled them, ransacking the annals of the libraries of Egypt, or as Ezra arranged them from what David, Asaph, and Hezekiah wrote. Then it went from inscripturation to transmission as copies were made and distributed. And it goes from transmission to translation as soon as we get it in our language. It goes from transmission and translation to preservation as the Holy Spirit operates through men and women in history. Unbelievers included, but sanctifying them by the priesthood of believers confirming. See, I don't see why you don't get that. People want to say, yeah, but there were, you know, high church Anglicans, uh, for all practical purposes, Catholics on the translation teams, and, you know, uh, King James, you know, we, you know, we know he spoke with a lisp, and yada, yada, yada. Okay, you know what, you know what Paul says when a, uh, a uh, in, in the early days, as Christianity and things started going, and an un, a, a believing lady might be married to an unbelieving man, Paul says, stay there, because your presence sanctifies the whole house. I mean, it sanctifies what's going to go on with the kids, because you know daddy ain't raising the kids, you're raising the kids. It sanctifies it. All right, well, same thing happened in terms of translating. That's why preservation works, and, uh, and, and God, the Holy Spirit, is still watching over and protecting what he originally gave. So here's our third point for study. It starts with a supernatural revelation. And if it does, it has to end with a supernatural preservation. Otherwise, God wasn't involved in giving it. Do you understand the words coming out of my mouth? We are showing you the doctrinal roots of biblical authority. In a method, this is Roman numeral three, a method of preservation. So here are the juicy bits. We know God's word was inspired. And many others besides us admit that. We've seen how it was transmitted once it was inspired. But a question of even greater moment to us today is, how was it preserved? How can I know? 
standing as much as 3,500 years after the original utterances were written down, that what I have today is what God intended back then in his book, the text and canon of the New Testament. Dr. Alexander Souter defines the study of textual criticism this way. Textual criticism seeks by the exercise of knowledge and trained judgment to restore the very words of some original document which has perished and survives only in copies complete or incomplete, accurate or inaccurate, ancient or modern. If we possessed the 27 documents now comprising our New Testament exactly in the form in which they were dictated or written by their original authors, there would be no textual criticism. The original documents, however, have long perished, and we have to make the best of the copies which have survived by how, howsoever many removes they may be distant from their ultimate originals. Now, from a human standpoint, his, de his definition looks reasonable, but Dr. Souter does not look to divine intervention for preservation and keeping of holy scriptures. He approaches the subject skeptically and not believingly, which is not the same thing as saying that he looks at it scientifically. We look at it scientifically. Science would look to all the sources including the supernatural and theological. But Souter looks only to knowledge and trained judgment. So the preservation of the word of God, according to Souter, rests in the hands of learned men. In their book, A General Introduction to the Bible, Drs. Geisler and Nix also depend on the science of textual criticism to solve the errors that crept into transmission. They say since the scriptures have undergone some 2,000 years of transmission, it is only natural to ask how much has the Bible suffered in the process? Or to put it more, well, you know, well, I don't know. How much did it suffer in the process, Jeremiah 36? Oh, it was tortured. But I think it came out okay at the end. Or to put it more precisely, is the 20th century English Bible an accurate reproduction of the first century Greek Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament. Well, why just why pick it up at the first century? I mean, it, I mean, he's already made a mistake. Why pick it up at the first century? Well, you, well, you know, Jesus was alive then. Yeah, but the Old Testament was, you know, Moses wrote fifteen hundred years before. Why start at the first century? But okay, he says the answer to this question comes from the science of textual criticism. In his attempt to address the King James Only movement, James R. White compares the issues of textual criticism with errors in sports. I am not making this up. I know you don't believe me. Let me read it to you. Men make mistakes even when they're trying really hard. The greatest baseball player still strikes out. The greatest basketball player will miss a clutch free throw and lose a game once in a while. The best archer will sometimes fire an arrow wide of the target. To, to err is human. There is not a single handwritten manuscript of the Bible in Greek or Hebrew that does not contain somewhere an error, an oversight, a mistake. To err is human, says James White. Now, I would not say that 
he's correct even on that score, given the, again, the mathematical precision with which the Hebrew Masoretic text was able to be preserved. But regardless, he tries to argue from the fact of inadvertent errors to prove the job of textual critics is necessary. And inadvertent errors is not the problem that we have with the modern text. So Donald A. Carson, in his work, The King James Version Debate, A Plea for Realism, you know, sometimes I do enjoy their sarcasm, uh, or irony, as the case may be. But in his book, he carries the thought of a copyist era all the way back to its earliest point, making the writings that Paul just finished subject to human errors. Watch. He says, Paul might write a letter to the church in Colossae while sitting under house arrest in Rome. But that letter was soon copied by several within the church and by a few more in the sister church nearby at Laodicea. Perhaps one of the members on a business trip to Macedonia took a copy with him. And while in Philippi, he copied the letter to the Philippians. At the same time, someone in the church at Philippi copied the letter to the Colossians. Of course, any error that the Colossian businessman inadvertently introduced into his own copy of Paul's letter to the Colossians would get picked up by the Philippian copy, copier. No! Not if it was inadvertent. They'd look at it and say, oh, you misspelled that word. Oh, yeah, I guess I did. You transposed those words. Oh, yeah, I, yeah no, the, I, I saw the one I was copying from. It didn't say that. I made a mistake. Those are not the things that cause the variant readings in the manuscripts. There are 1,438 sets of variant readings in the 4th edition United Bible Society's Greek text. And not, not one of them, none of them, because of errors in, a, in copying that would occur inadvertently when you skipped a word or misspelled something. Now get, uh, get uh, 2 Samuel 22 in your left hand and Psalm 118 in your right. 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 118. The problems textual critics have with determining the text for your New Testament resides in the places where people deliberately corrupted it. Yet Carson does not consider this, or, nor does he consider the fact of the Holy Spirit's providential preservation of the text down through the centuries, even while Satan was using his agents to wage attacks on it. So modern scholarship begins with the knowledge of men and the science of sexual, textual criticism. Since it views the Bible and biblical authority skeptically and not believingly, it is not a faith-based view. It ignores the devil's agents doing intentional damage. It ignores the Holy Spirit's hand through the priesthood of believers. It is no surprise then that their final conclusion is not certainty but ambiguity. And this is our fourth point for study. Modern textual critics are certain they're right, but they're not certain what they came up with is right. Hello, somebody. Since you missed that, let me ask you, what, what do we say to all that? Here, let me put some word in your mouth to wash it out. On the, on the plane out here, actually on the plane to Detroit, I sat next to a elderly, lay old mother in the church. 
legally blind, so I kind of helped her, you know, after we got to uh, Detroit, get her luggage and stuff like that. And we were sitting there, and she, and, uh, you know, she, uh, I'd say she looked over, but she's legally blind. But anyway, she said to me, um, do you know, uh, do, do you know Charles Stanley and Chuck Swindoll and, and, you know, I said, well, yeah, I mean, I know who they are. And she said, they're, you know, there are three programs like that, Charles Stanley and Chuck Swindoll and, and John MacArthur. And she said, I go to sleep listening to them at night. I come on the radio at the time I'm going to bed. I go to sleep listening to them at night. I told her, I said, you know, last Sunday I preached in my church. And I said, you know, one of the things I said, I said, you know, I don't, I don't have... Um, any hang-ups about musicality. So I can appreciate all different styles of music, but I said, you know what? If your music is spewing out vileness all the time, that's going to affect your spirit. It's going to affect your spirit if, if what you're listening to is just vile all the time. Or, wha- or whatever. If it's, if it's just, you know... If you're not playing the country record backwards so that he gets his truck back and his dog back and his, and his girlfriend back, it's going to affect your spirit. I said, you know, that's what I, because, you know, I think, you know, part of the problem is in certain states, anybody can smoke dope today. But the other part of the problem is you don't have a hymn book to go with your Bible. And, um, you know, there's certain, you need, you need a psalm an evening. If you're not going to read Spurgeon, at least read a psalm. Because then when you go to sleep on that, you wake up thinking totally different. And see, we ought to know that because in Bible terms, tomorrow starts the night before. Today started last night. I started my day last night by what I could do with God in the Word. So let me give you some word to wash your mouth out with, Psalm 118, verse 8. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Back in 2 Samuel 22, verse 31, as for God, his way is perfect. Now, now watch one of those comparisons again. I don't know if this was one of the 108, did you count them? The 108 parallels that Pastor Bartlett drew, but, but God's way, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He, well, he who, God or his word, yes, is a buckler to all them that trust in him. We cannot trust man because he will lie. Dr. Gregory House proved that. The arm of the flesh will fail us. But if our eyes are on God, we can be assured God is able God's preserved his word for us. We still have those preserved words today. How do we know? You're asking good questions. We know because of the doctrine of preservation. So let me hit you with this definition. Preservation means to keep from corruption. Now, I could also say we know from the doctrine of providence. But let me just stick, let me just stick for the, with this for a moment. Preservation as a subset of providence. Another one of those attributes of God. How can I know God's word was successfully preserved despite what some scholars say over thousands of years through thousands of manuscripts and thousands of hands? And the simple answer falls into three parts, and this is our fifth point for study. I know God's word was successfully preserved because I know who God is. 
internal evidence. I know what God's capable of since I know who he is and I know what God said about doing it. That was the whole last session Pastor Brett gave to you. Now turn to, turn to Psalm 12. Let me open it one more time for you. Psalm 12. There's a definite and solid scriptural basis for the doctrine of preservation of the Bible, even though almost no systematic theologies today discuss it, probably because it conflicts with their philosophy of textual criticism. God says his words are true. John 17, without error. Psalm 119 declares his words contain infallible proofs of truth. Acts chapter 1. He claims to have given us the scriptures by holy and divine inspiration. The Lord of hosts states he will keep and preserve his words longer than the existence either of heaven or earth. In fact, God says the words themselves are incorruptible. So man is not given the job of preserving God's word alone. Here's our sixth point for study. The keeping of God's word is the job of the Holy Spirit through the priesthood of believers, through believer priests like us. Concerning the words of the Lord, the inspired writer tells us in Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth. Purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. See, you already messed yourself up on that verse. You already missed it because you're binary and not process. And God is process, and you're binary. You already missed it. I know you think you know what I just read means. But I don't think you've ever really grappled with its implications, so let me mess you up. Verse 6 says, the words you have now were not, as the Lord, were not as the Lord wanted you to have them when they first came off, off the pen. Deal with it. Because what verse 6 means is, biblical authority does not reside in the originals, nor should it, since they do not exist. The authority resides in the words that were refined in the earth. We say, Alan, that's not logical. I, don't, I can't understand that. You can't understand the Trinity. So what? I can't understand. God says his words are pure, and yet they had to be refined. Okay, that's how big God is. He can give refinable words that are pure when they started out, and yet they come out being refined in a, not just in a furnace, in a, in a furnace of earth. That is a process. Um, 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 the purity that you have now, it, they weren't given that way then. Uh, in, in terms of the, what you're able to put your hands on today. Um, were the words that Jeremiah first uttered the final product? No, no. They were all the words, but God's providence has eyes. Okay, you still don't understand that. Let me, let me break it down. God's providence has eyes. The disciples came to Jesus and said, look, Rabbi, Master, you know, we're not, we don't doubt you or nothing. But whenever the, the scribes show us in Scripture that Elijah has to come first, what kind of answer are we supposed to give them? 
Jesus says, oh, I forgot. I live in eternity and you don't. I, I forgot. Uh, look, you know, when John the Baptist came, that was Elijah. But you know what? God's providence has eyes. When they rejected John the Baptist, yeah, Elijah's going to come. That was a decision God made going in, going, going as, as he went along, because that's how big God is. Okay, okay, you didn't get that. You, di- you didn't like uh, disciples. How about Paul? Okay, so Paul. Paul gets a word from the Lord. Hey, uh, and can, can you imagine, you know, Paul gets shipwrecked, and they wash up on an island someplace, and but once he gets on the Italian peninsula, it is a triumphal entry into Rome. And every place he went up the Appian Way, people were meeting and they were cheering. And Paul, you're preaching the gospel and that's what we've believed. And, and we're behind you, man. We got your back. But until he got to that point, they're out in the storm on the Mediterranean. Hurricane on the Mediterranean. I mean, who'd have thunk that? And they go through it for two weeks. And Paul finally says, look, you know, Jesus appeared to me and uh, told me we're all going to make it, only going to sh- lose the ship. And can you imagine once they finally got there, the report that the centurion gave in Caesar's house about this guy, Paul. So, okay, we're all going to make it, only the ship. And then a couple of guys try to, uh, try to let down a lifeboat. And Paul says, uh-uh, nada, all bets are off. Uh, centurion man, I need you to know, if they do that, no, God's providence has eyes. So you better stop them from doing that. So, okay. Uh, it was all God's words. It was all the words until it wasn't. And then God added many like ones. Uh, somebody assembled the Psalms in earth's furnace. What you have now came through a process. And understanding verse 6 is what makes intermediate stops less important and what you can leave here and buy in the bargain bin of a dollar store the most important. What is my authority? The King James Bible or the TR? I know. But wait, God works in a furnace of earth, not a computer. If, if somebody goes to a people who have no translation of the Bible, and they don't know Greek, well, they knew a Greek, you know, back in the hometown, he made gyros and stuff like that, but they don't know Greek. And he makes a translation from his King James, we ought to cheer them on. And if somebody feels called to learn Hebrew and Greek so they can go to a people who have no translation and translate from the TR, we ought to cheer them on. Process. That is how the Bible came to us in English. Wycliffe translated the Vulgate. The Vulgate was the only Bible we had in English for 150 years. The Great Bible was from Tyndale and German translations. So all I'm trying to say is God confounds modern scholarship by allowing them to get it exactly backwards. They start at the wrong spot when trying to define biblical authority and trying to identify biblical authority. They start at the originals 
And I know this is not my grandma's church, okay? I know this is not my grandmother's church. And I'm always intimidated following somebody like, you know, Pastor Bartlett, because then I'm afraid I'm going to use a phrase that he's going to mock later or one that he mocked and I forgot that he mocked. And so I know this is not my grandmother's church, but you know what my grandmother would say? They got it, but backwards. Well, that's not exactly what she would say, but that's the dynamic equivalent because I, I respect where I'm at. And they get it backwards because here are the three problems with the originals, baby baba. Everybody wants to go back to the original author, original intent, original manuscripts. No, original author was limited to human understanding. Peter says Isaiah didn't understand everything he was writing. Original intent is limited to past application. And original manuscripts, they're limited. Wait, no, hold it. They, they no longer exist. Get Isaiah 40 in your left hand, Matthew 5 in your right. Because they cannot handle the truth, verse 7 is corrupted in modern translations. Modern translators will not say if David's talking about God's word or God's people. Well, let me help you un get unconfused by simply cross-referencing and comparing Scripture with Scripture, as we talked about. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Isaiah 59, verse 21, same thing. We can go to the New Testament for the testimony of Jesus. Matthew 5, 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. It's God's word. It's all his words. Till he needs more word. An inspired word has become an inscripturated word. So by Jesus' time, that was a purified word. Having gone through the furnace of Moses... Jeremiah, with Jehudi's help, Ezra, and whomever else God chose to use. So Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. That is why. The bottom line is this, and then I bid you good day. Our seventh point for study. We can only reconstruct the true New Testament text with certainty by taking manuscripts from the priesthood of believers and observing God's hand in history. Preservation was a process of providence. And I understand, I understand if you are, if you are under 40, raise your hand. Okay, I understand, I wanna tell all of you, I understand there are some pastors out there who all they wanna do is recruit a new generation to defend the aging arguments of their own preferences and Baptist taboos. I understand that. And I know, I know there are some churches that are stuck in a movement that has stopped moving. Hello, somebody. So I know while some churches are sending out bold innovators and creative explorers and, and daring boundary crossers to make disciples, Others are sending out critics and fault finders and spiritual police. I understand all that. But I had to bleed over from text to translation today because we had, we had to complete our thought on biblical preservation. And I wanted to get your nose out of the papyri and back to Bible level. 
So this session, we got you from original writing to text. Tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll look at the scholars versus the scriptures and take you from inspiration to explore more about inscripturation. And that way, on the final day, we can turn the corner into translation. My time is up. I thank you for yours. I'll turn it over to whoever tells you what to do next.